every Sunday, I come into the room and get up to speak, and a whole bunch of people leave. So this is the uh, message that I put off from Father's Day, um, back when Nick and Emily were here and headed for Turkey. On September uh, 2013, there was an opinion poll about what people think of the devil. 57% believe in the existence of the, of the devil. 28% of the people who responded do not believe the devil is real or exists in any way. 40% who were millennials said they don't think the devil is real. 51% of respondents believe that a person can be possessed by an evil spirit. 21, or 28% of the people who responded said, no way, it's not real, it's not true. 46% believe in the power of exorcism, while 19% do not. 36% just plain don't know, they're not sure. What about you? What do you think about this whole area of spiritual reality, spiritual things, the dark side, not the force, but the devil, and the possibility of demons. Um, whatever you believe does not make it true or false. Whatever your friends believe or think does not make it true or false. Whatever people post on Facebook does not make it true or false or any other social media. The Bible states that Jesus encountered a man possessed by a demon in Luke chapter 8, verse 27. That's going to be our focus this morning. So I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke uh, chapter 8. If you grabbed a Bible when you came in, it's on page 722. We're going to be in Luke chapter 8. And I'll start by just reading a portion of this passage to get us focused on thinking. We start in verse 26. They sailed, that is Jesus and his disciples, to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in tombs. And when he saw Jesus... He cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man many times. It had seized him, though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard. He had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. So Jesus meets a man demonized. The situation, you can follow along on your outline. Uh, they, first, we start with this travel. Um, they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across from Galilee. And uh, let, let me just remind you, the day before, they'd been in the area of Capernaum. Jesus had been teaching there. He spent a lot of time there. Capernaum was kind of his headquarters. And then they got into a boat. Remember, the disciples, at least four of them, were serious fish, fishermen. So being in a boat was not a big deal got out onto the lake, and this huge storm comes up. It's very fierce. So the disciples become afraid, and Jesus is asleep. You know, he's just totally relaxed, and uh, 
Then he gets up and he calms the store and the chaos comes uh, back to order. So we have a map here, of course. It's needed. Just to remind you, that little lake at the top is the Sea of Galilee. And uh, you can see uh, Capernaum is kind of on the north side, a little bit west. And they went to the Gerasenes, and the town is uh, Gergesa. And uh, I worked on, this is, a, this is one of those uh, towns that doesn't exist today, so we don't really know how to pronounce it. And there's about uh, 21 different ways to pronounce this if you go to the computer, because there's lots of guesses phonetically how to say this. So however you want to say it is good. My rule of thumb when you read something from the Bible that you, that's hard to understand, just read it fast, okay? <laughs> second second uh, map, a little closer so you can see it. Uh, see Nazareth, that's where Jesus was raised. And then you see, so they got on the boat. They didn't go very far, but sometimes it can take a long time to travel a short distance in a storm. But they've reached the other side. And then we have the meeting in verse 27. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. So Jesus gets out of the boat. A man is coming toward him. Is he running or is he walking? He doesn't say. Why does he come? He doesn't say. Is he coming because he wants help? Because he's so excited Jesus is there? No. Is this the way he intimidates people? Maybe. He kind of comes upon them, and there's this fear that comes over them, and they withdraw. So he met the demon-possessed man. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes. This guy is totally naked as, he, as Jesus comes ashore, and he had not lived in a house. He's probably pretty rough-looking, probably cut up, probably very dirty, and he's totally naked. And he lived in the tombs. And in this area, those would have been caves. And caves are what they, where they took corpses to rot and decay. Um, they didn't have like regular burial grounds where they put everybody six foot under. They put them in caves or usually some, in some kind of box. Um, and uh, they were, you don't go visit tombs. They're, they're considered unclean. Corpses are considered unclean. And they're just waiting for those corpses to turn to bones. And um, sometimes homeless people would go to places like that to hang out for safety. And um, so this man has been living there. And probably all homeless people are very much afraid. And so this guy is a totally uh, a loner. In verse uh, 28 through 33, we have the power encounter. The power of darkness meets the power of God. And we see the impact, verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet. So this guy is coming toward Jesus. Is he running? He's coming toward Jesus. He's going to encounter Jesus. And then he realizes who this is. He, he just falls to the ground. It's sort of like he meets somebody way more powerful than him. He cried out and he fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice. So he's shouting, what do you want with me? Jesus, the son of the most high God. Who told him who he was? Nobody. This man had never heard of Jesus before, likely. But Jesus is identified by this voice called 
the son of the most high God. Who told him that? That was not revealed. It was used very few times. Gabriel used it to Mary to say he will be the son of the most high God, which means he is God. And this demon identifies Jesus. And then he says, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Um, the demon already knows his future. In the spiritual realm, there is communication uh, that happens in different ways. The, the spiritual world does not know everything there is to know. But the scriptures have already been revealed, and uh, at least the Old Testament has. Much information is out there about future things, and they would have knowledge of this. And one of the things they know, that their future is limited, their outcome is going to be destruction, and they're going to face a judgment. And this demon, in the face of Jesus, expects this could happen right now. I might face final judgment before Jesus Christ this very moment. And um, he says, don't torture me. Jesus himself taught about this in Matthew 25, verse 41, and he said this, uh, and if you know the parable of the sheep and the goats, the sheep represent those who are Christ followers. The goats represent those who do not put their faith in Christ. They are unbelievers. And the sheep are on the right, the goats are on the left, and Jesus, at judgment, turns to those on his left, and he says to those, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And this demon has awareness that this is coming. That, they, that one day the demons will be cast into the lake of fire, into eternal fire, place of judgment, that they are cursed and their time is short. And so uh, the demon is very fearful in the face of Jesus the demon is speaking through this man. And um, Revelation 20, verse 15, refers to this judgment. We get toward the end of the book of Revelation, and John writes, Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is final judgment for the unbeliever. This is not a judgment of believers. This is a judgment of unbelievers, and it is final judgment. And it is a lake of fire. It's a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Angels are messengers. There are good angels in the Bible and evil angels and demons are the evil angels. And um, so um, here's what I just want to remind us while we're talking about this whole subject. The mission of the church is about eternal life and eternal death. Hell is very real. Our purpose on earth is extremely important. It's a matter of life and death for some people. And we have the privilege to take the message of Jesus Christ to our world. And we have the privilege to help people come to faith in Jesus Christ. We can't make people do that. People have to choose themselves. But that's our role. And it's so easy just to get focused on what's happening in our life every day, and forget what is the real purpose of life and why are we really here. John 3.18 reminds us of this. 
These are the words of Jesus. He, and he's talking about the Son of God. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. If you believe in Jesus, you're not condemned. Those who have not believed yet are in, facing judgment. They, that's where they stand. That's their current position. It can be changed. And that's why Jesus has raised up the church. That's why he's left his followers. Okay, let's get back to our story. The predicament is in verse 29. Many times it had seized him, referring to the demon. The, the demon had seized the man. And though he was chained hand and foot. Now think about this. This poor guy, because of this uh, influence in his life, this demonic control, um, he has been chained. He's been shackled. He's, he, his hands have been put in shackles. His uh, feet have been put in shackles so that he can't do anything. And uh, he's, he had the power, the physical strength to break the chains. And he was driven uh, into isolated places. And you can imagine uh, there, there would be bruises and cuts and scars from all of this. And this wasn't human physical strength. This was strength empowered by a very powerful spiritual force. Um, the enemy, and we see here, has the practice of isolating people. And it, that can be really discouraging. Away from family, away from friends, away from community, and isolating. And this, this man's life, he was in a horrible situation. And then we see Jesus' authority displayed in verses 30 through 33. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied. In the first century, legion was a a term used for the Roman military, 6,000 troops. And it doesn't mean there are 6,000 demons present, but the idea is, there's a figure of speech here, the idea is that we are many. There's a large number here. It is possible for a person to be influenced by many at one time. That's what makes it so powerful in this occasion. Um, Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And so they, now it goes from it or he to now they. And scriptures just open up this uh, multiple demons now. They begged Jesus. So before they had one spokesman, uh, perhaps the most powerful spokesman is doing the speaking through the man. And now there's multiple spokesmen. They begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Ultimately, that was their final place of judgment. This was the biggest fear that Jesus would send them to their final destiny. Verse 32, a large herd of pigs were feeding uh, on the hillside. This was the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee. In this area, there are very high banks. Cliffs from the water side. 
And uh, this man has approached Jesus at the level of the, Medi- of the Sea of Galilee. And on the hillside up above, there is a large herd. Mark chapter 5, verse 13 tells us that the herd is about 2,000. That's a pretty good size herd of pigs. And a um, little background here. This is the promised land. This is the land God gave his people the Jewish nation. They were not to be raising pigs. They were off limits in the Old Testament period. And this area had been heavily influenced by the Gentiles, the non-Jewish peoples, and there were probably more Gentiles in the area than Jewish people. And so here we have this large herd of pigs uh, right off the Sea of Galilee. The, the demons begged Jesus, let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. This is a really unusual request. Let us go into the pigs. And Jesus gives them permission. Have you ever asked Jesus for something and he didn't give it to you? Well, he answers yes for this. And he lets them go into pigs. Verse 33, when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Whoa! This was an amazing thing. This was a stunning event. You know, when Jesus did miracles, they were signs. They were to point to something more significant. They were to point to God's messenger and to God's message, to pay attention, to listen up. And this was one of those signs, a miraculous sign. It's not the ordinary. Jesus cast out the demons, who were many, And they went into the pigs, and they had such an effect on the pigs, this self-destructive group who were trying to destroy the man go right into the pigs, and they become extremely self-destructive. In fact, they run off the edge of a cliff. You know, they commit suicide. I personally think that's a very strong demonic activity, is to cause people to think. Remember, the enemy primarily deals in ideas, mind control, thought control. If the enemy can cause you to be fearful about certain things and begin to, your behavior follows your fears, not truth, not faith in Christ, the enemy becomes very powerful. And um, when it comes to suicide, people get isolated, I'm not saying this happens on every occasion. I just think, I really wonder if there's an evil spirit present when somebody is contemplating being self-destructive. Okay, the aftermath, verses 34 through 39, the report, when those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. So now the story is going to spread. We have eyewitnesses, and they're going to give an eyewitness account of exactly what happened. And immediately they go and tell. This is good news. Jesus has come. He's delivered this man. This is good news. Remember Jesus in Luke 4 said he would set the captives free. He did it. This is good news, right? Not for everybody. Is this bad news? 
for some. Verse 35, and the people went out to see what had happened. So these people, they hear about Jesus, they go right out. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind. This is good news. Jesus has freed this man from the power of this evil spirit. He's cleaned up, he's in clothes, he's in his right mind, and he's with Jesus. What's not good about that? Well, for some people, pigs are more important than this sad little man. It says, and they were afraid. They saw what Jesus had done. They heard about the pigs, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it, told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. That would be good news, wouldn't it? And the response, verse 37, then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome by fear. They were afraid of Jesus. They were over, they were, what will Jesus do in our community? Will he, will more, more of our pigs be taken? What will Jesus do? By the way, they don't try to have him arrested. So he got into the boat and left. Just like that. Jesus promises to be with his church as we make disciples. And he says, and behold, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. What if we don't do that? What if we don't make disciples? Will Jesus leave? If we're not doing what he's called us to do, there's no evidence that we are genuine followers of Christ. Verses 38 and 39, they reject Jesus. Jesus leaves because they have a different set of values. Verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So think about this guy, this poor guy. He's just been delivered by Jesus. He's he's just sort of like, he feels cleaned up. He feels free. He feels safe. And there's Jesus, the one who made it happen. And he wants to go with Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. He wants to get into the boat with the other disciples. And Jesus says what? No. You ever had Jesus say no to your request? That was a good request. Jesus has another purpose for this man. And he says, I want you to go go home. I want you to to tell what God has done for you. I want you to tell your family. I want you to tell your friends. I want you to tell everybody in town. And so the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. And this man obeys Jesus because that's what a Christ follower does. He did it by faith. He'd rather have been with Jesus. Jesus asked him to do something else. So he did what Jesus said he should do. That's obedience. That's living by faith. 
So let's talk about a couple of lessons here. Um, there's a lot of interesting things to consider, but here I'm going to give you, I think, just four. Uh, the first one, um, I think, is, uh, might be pretty um, obvious. An accurate view of reality must include the spiritual dimension. An accurate view of the reality of this room and the people in it must include the spiritual dimension. Jesus Christ is present. The Holy Spirit is living in all those who believe. I would assume that there are angels in this room. I have no reason not to think that. Um, Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 reminds us of our battle. The Apostle Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And I always like to say when I teach this passage, what if you're not strong? Then you're putting yourself in, the, in a really susceptible place to spiritual weakness and spiritual warfare. Be strong. That's the command. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. What if you don't take your stand? You're easy pickings. Next slide. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Spiritual warfare is very real. The Apostle Paul acknowledges this. For the church, we have a struggle. It's not a physical one. There is a spiritual one. Rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world refer to ranks of angels. In this case, ranks of demons. Demons have a purpose to establish a counterfeit kingdom. Jesus Christ came to establish the kingdom of God, to advance it, to promote it, and to build it. Satan has a plan to be like God, and he has a plan to have another kingdom. And he's going to counterfeit. He's going to do things that sometimes look good and are just enough off to uh, be, have the enemy behind it. Okay, second lesson. Every follower of Christ has resources for spiritual battle. Every follower of Christ has resources. The first one is uh, prayer, and that's in Ephesians 6.18. Prayer uh, can tear down the enemy's strongholds. Uh, prayer uh, can, can weaken the forces of darkness. The Word of God is another uh, resource for spiritual warfare. Ephesians 16, Ephesians 17. The, the Word of God has authority over evil and the enemy. And the Word of God nourishes us and builds us up and gives us life and gives us direction and empowers us. The good news of Christ is another resource, Ephesians 6.15. The gospel message moves against the kingdom of darkness. Think about this. Every time one person comes to faith, light is brought into the world and darkness steps back. The righteous lifestyle is a fourth one I'm going to mention. Walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Ephesians 6.14. Um, Walking with Christ, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit strengthens us, enables us to persevere, to be wise, to continue to follow Christ, and to overcome sin and temptation. Third lesson. One individual person is more important to Jesus than 2,000 pigs. And the pigs represented wealth, business venture, a material Thing. 
One individual person is more important to Jesus than 2,000 pigs. Now, animal lovers, pay attention, please. People love animals. There are people who love pigs. Go on the internet. I googled this week, can pigs swim? And they can. But that doesn't mean 2,000 could be run off a cliff and they could swim. And, and I guess some people would say pigs are cute. It's okay. When I start talking about dogs, that's a whole other animal. Because sometimes, and I see this among Christians, they love their dogs so much, it becomes way more important than people. In fact, I think sometimes it becomes more important than God. That's dangerous ground. For Jesus, people are more important. I don't I enjoy. God gave us animals to enjoy. He, that's what creation is about, for us to enjoy. Let's just keep the right things, the right things. Keep values that God has. Enjoy animals. Don't make them more important than God's place or people. I think we have a danger in our culture about values. I read a story in 2015 about a jewelry store owner. Maybe you've seen this. And she had way more turquoise Native American jewelry than she needed. She had huge abundance. And so she began to cut prices. And she told her salespeople to uh, push this. And she set up displays where it was, you couldn't you know, go through the store or get out the cash register without this turquoise jewelry and the prices. And it just wasn't moving. And the owner got so frustrated so that she, when she was going on vacation, she just told her sales manager, I want you to cut all of it in half. Just cut all of it in half. And so she went on vacation. And when she came back, every piece of jewelry had been sold. And that was amazing. But the sales manager misread the orders to cut the price in half. She doubled the price. She doubled the price and everything sold because people thought the more expensive they were, the more valuable it would be. And they sold every one. Sometimes we get our price tags turned around. Sometimes we elevate things because it's just so cool in our culture. Because somebody says these things are important. And we begin to see some of God's values drift away about life, about sexuality, about all kinds of things, about money and stuff. We get the price tags messed up and we place sometimes the wrong values and we make choices that we may regret. Number four, Jesus wants every follower of Christ to share their story. Remember, he said, return home, tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. That's what we're supposed to do. This man had experienced Jesus, how Jesus changed his life, the power of Jesus. And he, Jesus said, I just want you to tell people. You're not going to answer every question people have about the Old Testament, 
but you can answer what Jesus has done for you. That's what he told the man to do, and so he did. And the news spread. It was good news. And that's what he wants us. He wants us to tell our story. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is a good reminder. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. That was a command and a prophecy. And Jesus wanted his followers, this is to his original group, he wants his followers just to tell their story. You can't tell what you don't know, but you can tell what you do know. That's all. You don't have to have all the answers or all the proofs. Just what do you know? What do you know, what do you know about God? What do you know about Jesus? What did he do for you? Did he die on the cross for you? Do you know that? Have you experienced his forgiveness? Can you share that? Has he given you any hope? Can you share that? That's what it means to be a witness. Um, so tell your story. This is how I like to tell my story. Uh, first, what my life was like before I met Christ. You know, that's for, for me, it was the first 25 years. I kind of started out being a normal kid, and then I started getting really far from God. I got married very young. Um, got into college, became an atheist. Those are my first 25 years. And then how did I meet Christ? How did you meet Christ? What's your story? Well, for me, there, were, uh, there was a family, uh, a husband and wife, who were close friends, actually, of Sue's family, not my family. And they prayed for us, and uh, they reached out to us, invited us into their home, and they wanted to talk, and they wanted to hear about my philosophy, and they wanted to hear about atheism, and they, they wanted to know what I thought, and they treated me with dignity, and I, I liked them. I was very skeptical, but I liked them. And they told me about Jesus, and I'd heard about Jesus. And they're just something. These people are really, they're very real. There's something here. And over time, I wanted what they had, and I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. They offered, they explained that Jesus died for me, paid for my sin, and if I put my faith, I would be forgiven. And it was true. And they were right. And how Jesus has changed your life? Well, he changed my thought life. He changed my speech. He changed the way I treated my wife. And um, he, he gave me a new purpose, new goals, new values. And here we are today. By the way, I'm no longer an atheist. So I want you to write your own story. Could you write your story this week? Because it does change over time. Would you write your story this week and would you share it with one other person? Could you do that? Your story, you share it. Jesus wants you to tell others what he's done. You don't have to preach at them. You don't have to tell them to stop doing certain things. Just tell them your story, okay? We've been reminded that Jesus provided a great gift for us. He provided what we call salvation. He died on the cross. He paid the penalty for sin. I deserve death. We deserve death because of our sin, but he paid for it. We placed our faith, we receive forgiveness, we receive eternal life, we place our faith in Jesus. Today, we remember that. We call this communion, and that's how we're going to close our service, uh, by celebrating communion. Um, Jesus first practiced this with his disciples, and he asked them to remember him. The Apostle Paul uh, gave this practice to the church by way of command in 1 Corinthians 11. And we, we are here today, over 2,000 years later, and we still do this to remember him.
And I'm going to invite those who are going to serve communion. If you just come up right now, those who are going to serve, and you can, you can get ready. And um, we're going to take a small piece of bread. Our communion is going to be open. It's to, if you are a Christ follower, it doesn't make a difference whether you come to the bridge or you're a member of the bridge. It doesn't make a difference. If you're a Christ follower, we welcome you, we invite you. And um, we're going to take the bread, and it's, it doesn't make a difference what kind of bread it is, or it doesn't really make a difference what it is. The idea is, is we're going to remember. That piece of bread is a symbol that reminds us of the body of Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us. He took our place. And then we're going to have a cup. Our, ours is going to be grape juice. And uh, it's a reminder of the blood of Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of Jesus Christ. It's his life for our lives. And we are to stop and remember that. And that ought to humble us. We ought to remind us, I'm a sinner. I'm not better than any person in this room. I'm not better than any person in this world. I've been forgiven because of Jesus. I need to be reminded of that. Kind of puts us, gets us back all on the same level. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? I'm not better, nor am I in any way lower. We are all followers of Christ. That's who we are. We, we are children of God. We are in his family. Our sins are forgiven. We are citizens of heaven. We have the Holy Spirit. That's our new identity. It's a chance for us to make sure that we're okay with God. Sometimes we come in a little bit sloppy in our spiritual lives and we just need to realign our hearts to tell God what it is that's keeping us from being who, what he wants. And so we have a time of confession. We have a promise as, as followers of Christ. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. There is nothing he can't forgive. This is the children of God only. This is family business stuff here. It's for God's family. And we can be purified as the church, okay? So I want to pray. I'm going to just take a brief time at the beginning to, a, to take time so we can talk to God and make sure our hearts are clean. And if there's sin, you can confess it. And then I'll thank the Lord uh, for the bread and the cup. And our practice is, uh, for those maybe who are uh, here for the first time, never been to our communion service, um, we're going to invite people to come up whenever they're ready, and they can take the bread and the cup, and then they can just walk back to their chair and take it whenever they want. So let us pray. Father, we just pause before you. We are amazed by your grace, and we're thankful for um, the story of the man who was demonized and for how you delivered him and that you work just one life at a time, and you work in our lives one at a time. We are reminded of your great love for us, your great sacrifice for us, that Jesus would die for us. Father, we want to bring our hearts, and we want to be honest before you. We want to be transparent. We want you to just have the freedom to point out anything that is displeasing to you. 
And may we just be give an honest response and confess our sin. Privately, just right now with you. Just use this time to talk to God. And so, Father, we believe your promise for the sins that have been confessed in this room that you have forgiven and that you've purified of all unrighteousness. And those who have confessed are now forgiven. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you uh, for the bread that represents his body. Thank you for the cup that represents his blood. Amen.